This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... Investigative Scenario Toughies. Italian Horror Cinema. Surrealist Communism. And Past Life Regression. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crackle of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, uh, Patreon backer Trung Bui asks us, when formulating an investigative scenario or campaign, what do you find to be the hardest aspects to create or work on? Robin, what do you find to be the hardest aspects to create or work on when formulating an investigative scenario or campaign? The need to write both forwards and backwards at the same time. So the challenge with a mystery that the characters have to unravel is that there has to be at least one, preferably several, directions in which they can go to uncover all of the clues to figure out what it is that is going on. Now, not every mystery has you working out a a backstory to a series of events that has already happened, but more of them do than don't. Uh, And, you know, your classic murder mystery is, you know, who killed this person and uh, how did they do it and how did they cover it up and which other people around didn't kill that person but had a reason to do it. And so you need the sort of path or ideally multiple paths of uh, clues to gather, to put together to figure out what happened. At the same time, what happened has to all make sense. And the things that the, uh, you know, in a more action adventure thing, the fact that the uh, villain's plan doesn't really cohere and that there are logical leaps in it might not ever occur to the players because they're busy thinking about how they got to the next fight and and so forth. But in an investigative game, what the uh, bad guy is doing and and the order in which the bad guy did it is what you are trying to uncover. So you have to have something that makes logical sense backwards and forwards. And just making logical sense in a plot uh, is hard enough uh, to begin with, let alone making logical sense both ways. I think that for me, the hardest part of writing or uh, creating an investigative anything, especially a campaign, but a scenario is tough as well, is managing pacing. Because if the players figure out who did it super early and jump right to that confrontation 
and take them down, you've short-circuited some of the purpose of playing the game. Not so the storyline. The storyline is just as satisfactory if, oh, it was the maid, bam, maid is dead, problem solved. But it's a less, you know, full gaming experience. And if you had to interview a bunch of people and get into a fight with some gangsters and sail down the Thames and do whatever else, and then, oh, it was the maid, uh, bam. And that is a, a fuller game experience. So I find that controlling pacing is key because you have to delay the end of the story without making it boring. And, uh, nope, you didn't find anything about that servant. Ask the undergardener, ask the overgardener, ask the third gardener. And it just, ugh, no one wants that. So you have to have the things that are not solving the mystery or that are even red herrings have to be just as interesting and fun and valuable to have played as solving the mystery. So the mystery has to compel the players, but the things that they do until they solve the mystery also have to compel the players or else they will be bored. They will feel like it, if it's, it's railroaded, even if it's not, and, and they will, they will lose engagement with the story. And then eventually they'll lose engagement with the mystery because it'll be like, I, I literally don't care since apparently you, the GM don't care uh, why we're doing this. So you have to, keep the mystery compelling, but you have to also have to keep the parts of the mystery that are not the solution compelling. And that's something that mystery writers have a hard time doing much less. Um, although many of them just simply solve it and make the solution also not compelling, which is not the way I want to do it either. Right. But I, I think that that pacing is, is super hard. It's hard at the table and it's even harder um, as a designer, because at the table, at least I can count on my players being blabbermouths, or I can ask a question that I know will cause 10 minutes of argument and take over that way. Whereas the designer, I can't say, this is a good time for you to make your players start a fight with each other. That's not going to work. <laughs> um, and a pacing related issue is that players will often uh, fixate on acquiring a clue that if in order for the rest of your structure to make sense, you have had to withhold. So, you know, let's say that there's a uh, classic thing where they get five sets of documents leading to five places in the world, and the idea of the campaign is they go to each one in, in sequence, and, you know, you establish a reason why they can't just go to the post office and figure out who sent all those packages and shortcut going to all of those five places, right? And uh, particularly in a modern game, uh, there are so many ways to surveil people and get information uh, that ruin plots. Uh, one solution to that is to do the same as the Coen brothers and to make sure that they never write anything that occurs after the mobile phone. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you may be writing a modern thing where there's uh, uh, surveillance footage and uh, there's uh, the computer must have been used for that and this and that. This company must have had this amount of information on file. And uh, not only can you not, uh, you know, if you, so it can be hard to foreclose all of those things in a way that the players will accept. You can get your fictional private investigator or a real life cop to just go, oh, well, that avenue isn't fertile. Uh, let's move on to this next clue that I do have. But sometimes players get really fixated on, on clues and you... Uh, Almost as tough. if they sense it will short circuit the story. Right, yes. Um, and... Uh, and you've got to, you know, work hard to come up with justifications for why they can't just find the footage or the hotel records or the, uh, the rental car records or, or what have you. I think that's a specific case of the general case of um, misdirection, not misdirecting, which is always going to be a problem. And again, it's sort of the that's what my other problem was. It was also misdirection, not misdirecting that. No, follow this exciting chain of events until you find out the maid did it. And if you weren't misdirected and you said, oh, the maid did it, then I've failed. And in a way, coming back from a failed magic trick is impossible. If you didn't, if you weren't watching the lovely attendant or the flight of doves, then you saw the trick being done and you and you know it and there's no way to fix it. So my sort of backup solution is to, at the very least, make a short circuit dangerous, just like a real short circuit is. You've closed that loop, but you've closed that loop before the maid is panicked, and while she still has uh, the amulet of seven moons or whatever, uh, you, you've closed that loop while shooting the maid is going to anger uh, your, your rich and powerful patron. You've closed that loop. Uh, you found the guy who sent those packages and he's guarded by, um, uh, undying zombie, uh, merman who you can only take down from, 
uh, bits that you pick up in those other five locations. Um, you found that you've closed the loop and you get there and you've led the bad guys to the guy who was your informant. And all you find is his messily, uh, decapitated corpse. So you have to make that short circuit interesting and dangerous to close so that over time players learn that there's a reason we don't go after that because it might turn bad. And much like real detectives say, we can't go there. The, you know, the, the CIA won't give us the information or we don't have jurisdiction or it seems uh, unproductive given that we have all these other places to chase. You can get that habit into your player group. And if you are a designer writing up the, uh, what happens if they short circuit it, then I think it is incumbent on you to at least make a short circuit entertaining in the moment, even if it does, uh, leave out a lot of the thematic or, or even event material that you had intended the scenario to do, because no one is, uh, satisfied by the magician just folding his arms and saying, well, I guess that trick didn't work. The heck with you kids. You've moved on from why this is hard to like solving problems. I don't know if that was in the remit of the question, but, uh, since, since we're there, since we're there, uh, yeah. Um, another way to do that is to just have a ticking clock, right? right. So that, uh, if they want to get the, uh, you know, go through the computer records of this other company, it's like, well, they're, uh, they're demanding a warrant. That's going to take us 12 hours to uh, arrange through our police contacts as we're pretending to be police. But while you're doing that, you're losing 12 hours where the, the bad magician yeah. uh, can be escaping. So we're going to, uh, and that's why it's sort of useful to have kind of NPCs who are also helping to work on the mystery, right? So that if you've got a kind of a backup, team of someone who could, well, I'll, I'll work in the lab in this, you know, we'll, we'll get the lab boys on this and then you continue chasing him. And when the lab boys find something, they'll give you a call. And so now that doesn't work in every, uh, possible, uh, mystery, uh, world, because a lot of the times you're, you know, you, you want to have the characters be the protagonist and solving the mystery, but it's can be useful if you can come up with a way to do that, to have secondary characters do the, tasks that seems like they're moving forward, but also herds the characters in, in a more fruitful direction. So, or at least more exciting direction. Right. Uh, so that the, you know, the Trail of Cthulhu uh, uh, team can have their, uh, you know, my, my uncle, the scientist, can work on uh, g- getting this uh, bit of information for you, and we're going to go to Peru, and uh, he will send you a telegram when he gets it. I know that doesn't work in every instance, but it does work in some. Yeah, I, let's talk, since we have um, cleverly blown through the answer to this question in jig time, let's talk about what we don't actually find hard that maybe people do find hard and try and solve those problems. Like, a lot of people seem to find it hard to come up with clues. Um, they're like, well, we have a mystery, but I have no idea how to do clues. I think that that's like falling off a log easy because every event leaves ripples. Every event has effects. Every event has something that changes because of it, whether it's a person or a, uh, a, a piece of physical evidence or uh, a magical uh, spore of some kind. Anything that happens leaves these effects. And the hard part, to the extent there is a hard part for me, is picking out the three that I want to put into the scenario and then moving on. Because the temptation, of course, is to just uh, you know, Dealey Plaza, the thing and list every possible eyewitness and every possible piece of evidence that points one way or the, the other. And that is almost always a colossal waste of time because player characters and players don't want to do all that. They just want, they, they will be easily able to tangle themselves up in any more than three clues if you drop them. And they're capable of, of, of parsing the clues and moving on in a way that allows you to continue a story. So, to me, uh, figuring out a clue is just a matter of looking at the uh, the ripples that uh, get left in the pond or the pool balls that move or anything that changes as a result of whatever the action is that you're trying to leave clues to. And some things you can say, no, he used anti-gravity. That's why there's no footprints. But he's still going to have left something because, you know, if you can't murder someone without leaving any traces, uh, at the very least, you left a murdered body. So that's going to be evidence in some way. So that's. That's something that I find super simple. What do you find super easy that other people might find hard? Uh, giving the uh, witnesses who are not actually the culprits reasons not to cooperate with the investigators. Because if everybody is cooperative and automatically gives you all the information you need and then one person isn't, that blows the yes. gaff. Uh, what's and the maid got to hide? All the other servants are so darn nice. Right. And so uh, the trick there is just to, to start off with a different reason for why this person doesn't want to talk to you and you have to overcome their resistance. 
and uh, you can sort of even make a list of stock reasons and then distribute them through the different characters. So, so there's, you made a bad impression on them. They don't want to get involved. They're afraid of being uh, drawn further into the mystery. They're afraid of getting sued. They uh, just have something else they immediately uh, have to do. They have a, a prejudice against uh, whatever... Uh, they have another secret they're, that they're worried that solving the mystery will solve, like the fact that they're sleeping with the third gardener. Yes, that's, that's a big classic one. Um, now that we have not only asked the question, answered the question, solved the answer, we are now answering the other half of the question that was not asked. This gaming hut has been triumphantly, I think, concluded. We can put down the dice and stride confidently upstairs into another hut. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The soundtrack is particularly discordant. The Perhaps the, the score that we're hearing may be the best thing about the movie that we're seeing here in the Cinema Hut, because this time uh, we are following up on a, a request from Patreon backer Mark Kevin Hall to provide an introduction to Italian horror movies. And this was in response to uh, a review that I put on our uh, Ken Robin Consume Media uh, text feature, which is uh, exists because Patreon backers have backed our campaign. And uh, we may sometimes let uh, people uh, ask for things for us to talk about and tell me more. But this time, the request is turned into a cinema hut, because I think we can sort of expand this into our uh, Cinema 101. Although there are many fewer directors and uh, films to recommend for what is a much uh, narrower uh, genre and era of filmmaking that basically goes from kind of the late 50s to... Uh, kind of the maybe the mid '80s is as far as it goes, but Italian horror has its own uh, particular flavor, its own uh, distinctive uh, subgenre that we'll uh, describe in a bit, and uh, a relatively short roster of filmmakers. And the one that I would especially point to is the uh, not only the granddaddy but the master of Italian horror is uh, Mario Bava, uh, who creates these uh, uh, dreamlike uh, horror films that are uh, big on atmosphere and uh, kind of uh, psychological uh, menace. Some of them are explicitly uh, supernatural. Others of them are uh, giallo movies. Uh, these are films that have a horror atmosphere, but they're 
uh, basically extremely intense murder stories. Uh, other directors focus much more on the mechanics of the people being murdered than uh, Bava does. Uh, he started his career doing, uh, uh, he did a couple of uh, sort of sword and sandal movies, but I think his big uh, first original uh, horror movie uh, that you might want to track down is uh, Black Sunday from 1960. and uh, that The legendary has, uh, Barbara Steele. Barbara Steele in it. And that is sort of a medieval uh, gothic uh, one. In, 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 a, in a lot of ways, I think Black Sunday is Bava responding to Hammer. Yes. I think Hammer is, you know, taking the gothic out of the 30s, out of the black and white, and saying, look what we can do with uh, with all of this um, uh, gore and color and, and wonder and, and greatness. And Bava's like, I don't think we're all done with black and white yet. And if I do a universal film in the hammer tradition, basically, which black Sunday is, um, I, I think you could, you'll, you'll see that maybe I'm not wrong. And black Sunday, if you watch that in the context of either the universal horrors to which it is kind of a, a final great response, but also of the hammers, I think you get a lot out of it and you get a lot out of it just watching it. Cause it's a terrific movie. Um, and a terrific film really in a way that a lot of great horror movies aren't because, uh, we're consumed by the incident or by, uh, the pacing and less so by the, you know, the directorial capacity of setting up shots and Bava, whatever else is wrong with him, he can put together a shot like nobody's business. The, another Mario Bava film that I would recommend, although it is probably pretty high camp, uh, for a lot of people is Planet of the Vampires, which is a science fiction horror film and deserves to be watched in, uh, conjunction maybe with Forbidden Planet. Um, which is another science fiction horror film. And a lot of it turns up in Alien, although people are very rapid uh, to claim that there is no connection and it's all a coincidence and no one had ever seen Planet of the Vampires before they made Alien. But if you watch Planet of the Vampires, you will see what Alien would have looked like on a Mario Bava budget um, and with his particular sensibilities in, involved. I, I think it's a terrific movie. And yes, and, and I don't find it camp particularly. It, it has a really great sense of... I think people uh, will find it camp. You don't find it camp yeah. because you're capable of watching a film not made in your home decade, Robin. But right. I think other yes. people might well find it camp. Uh, but I found it had a... Re the You know, the scenes on the planet have a real sort of uh, uh, evocative it's sense of, sort of like the horror and em emptiness of, of space. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, well, yeah, so if we're assuming people who can't look at a movie from 1965 and get into its uh, uh, style of metier, none of these films are going to appeal to you. Just go go watch some paranormal activity movie or something. But, <laughs> well, but fine viewers right. are, are the, listeners. The, the estimable uh, listeners of Ken and Robin talk about stuff know that when they are watching um, uh, Blood and Black Lace, they are going to see the uh, the greatest uh, first uh, giallo of the, of the era. Um, and to sort of expand on your discussion of giallo, uh, the word means yellow. It comes from the yellow backs of crime novels, and it was based on a bunch of crummy German crime films. And the Italians historically say anything the Germans can do crummily, we can do better and classily. <laughs> and uh, they it proved themselves they proved themselves absolutely right because gialli, blood and black lace included, although it has other virtues, are very much about. Uh, spectacle and imagery and emotion and theme and less so about your boring Anglo-Saxon concerns like narrative and character. And so in a lot of ways, they are what film brings to the table with less concern about what previous narrative arts brought to the table. So it's, it's not theatrical. If any, if it's anything, it's like anything, it's operatic, but it's not even that. It's its own thing. It's very filmic. It's a cinematic, uh, genre of cinema in that it does things cinema can only cinema can do. And it does them in the service usually of a black gloved murderer killing a bunch of, uh, attractive Italians with one American, um, because that's how the budgets work. And, uh, uh, Blood and Black Lace is a terrific one. And it's a, it's a very early giallo. And it's another great uh, Mario Bava film. Yeah. Um, uh, while we're still on Bava and Giallo, I'd recommend Hatchet for the Honeymoon, uh, which is a great example of how uh, dreamlike and beautiful a uh, movie about people m being murdered uh, can be. <laughs> um, not in the horror genre, but since we're talking about uh, Bava, uh, definitely campy, but in a great way, is Danger Diabolique from 1968. 
his sort of spy superhero movie. Yeah, yeah. Again, Bava, because he's so good at putting together a shot, any movie he makes is going to be worth watching just because they're so good. And Danger Diabolique is a great deal of fun in addition to uh, being beautiful to look at. And, uh, again, it doesn't make just a gigantic amount of sense, but by 1968, virtually no spy film did even the serious ones. So, uh, that may have been a response to 1968, not making that, that much sense. Now, the next director we want to mention is one that you have more of an affinity for than I do, and that's, uh, Dario Argento. Right. Uh, who is another, uh, plausible claimant to be the father of the Giallo. Um, I think that, uh, he's not really, but he made one of the early, really great ones. And he made, uh, one of the ones that sort of put the genre on the map. And that is The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which was a 1970, uh, film. And it was, I think, his first film. And it is very, what do I want to say? It's, he's the one who, who shifts the genre into, uh, explicit gore and dismemberment or does so most. Uh, enthusiastically. <laughs> I, I think what he does is he brings that element from the uh, shadows or from the threat in, into the front of what everyone's experiencing, like you do the scenery or like you do the characters. Yeah. The, the gore becomes a star in a way. Would you like to see how people are made of meat? Yes. Who wouldn't? <laughs> Can be disassembled in various exciting ways. Yeah. Um, the, the, so the bird with the crystal plumage is, is a, is a, is a great movie. It's a great giallo, but the thing about, Argento is, is that he leaves the giallo behind because it's just too darn realistic for him. And he makes, uh, a, um, a movie in 1977 called Suspiria, which if it weren't for Star Wars might be the greatest genre film of the seventies. It's an amazing horror movie. Even the giallo would pay some sort of lip service to narrative. Uh, Suspiria doesn't. Suspiria, when we, uh, when we, uh, talk about Films being dreamlike, this is more dreamlike than most dream films in that none of it makes a lick of sense. All of it gets your heart racing and it's just, um, it, it's bananas. It's about, in theory, it's about a, a ballerina who goes to a witch house, but it's, it soon becomes about how much barbed wire can you fit in a room and other vital questions of our day. Right. And, and one big asterisk is that although I've meant to see Suspiria, for years, for, that's one of those things that weirdly I just have never seen. It. Wow! So that's uh, that's that's it's startling. A, a logistical thing, yeah. not a, uh, and and that's the one that I think I probably uh, would dig, or the ones with more of a. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you would dig it. It's it's then. just a masterpiece. The trouble is that he it was the first of a trilogy about the three uh, fates or the three mothers. Um, Our Lady of uh, Sighs is Superior. Uh, there's Our Lady of Tears and Our Lady of. Um, I forgot what the other lady is. She's uh, in the second movie, Inferno, which is not anywhere near as good as uh, Suspiria. Um, and then the third one, Our Mother of Tears, is just terrible. So don't watch that. Um, so Suspiria does stand alone and should stand alone. And don't don't concern yourself with uh, the alleged sequels. Although Inferno is a great deal of fun, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't make it a big deal. And one that is very effective, but uh, in a way I did not want to be effective, <laughs> uh, was Opera, uh, which is a later uh, giallo where things are still completely dreamlike. And uh, in part, it concerns uh, a uh, opera director whose uh, things that he's staging in operas are turning into murders. And uh, there's a, a production of Verdi's Macbeth in that, that just, and, and uh, Argento does direct opera. And it, what that film made me want to do was to see Argento's production of Verdi's Macbeth and, <laughs> and not to be watching that film. And, and my, the thing about it is just that, uh, with some of the films you, I, I feel anyway, that it's like, it's a good thing that cinema exists, or perhaps he would be finding another way to explore the way that people are just meat. Yes. He's, he, it's one of those things where you're glad that they found that as opposed to, um, finding something else. There's a, um, uh, there's a movie that he made that is not necessarily as great as other Argento movies, but I think is fun because it's Argento's movie about movies. And because it's Argento, it's a movie about how the reality of movies is murderous and horrible, uh, as are everything else. And it's called Demons or Demoni. And it's set in, in a Berlin movie theater. So it's a siege horror film, but it's also a zombie film and there's stuff comes off the screen and attacks people. And it's everything that you think doesn't work at all in a horror movie 
movie theater movie, but because it's Argento for the purposes of, for the time you're watching it, you not only buy it, but you are, you know, edge of your seat. What's going to happen next? I can't believe it. How is this happening? Forgetting that you've seen all of these bits used by, uh, in some cases, better directors or better, um, centerists, at least, um, in other movies. And the, I think the closest experience to demons is if you imagine the film Gremlins 2 as a serious horror film, you get demons. Um, and I think that, uh, demons is well worth watching, although it is not Suspiria by any stretch of the imagination. And I, you know, it's not even, uh, Tenebre or Phenomena or any of the sort of, uh, B plus or A minus Argentos that are great to watch, but I don't think are mandatory in the way that Suspiria is or, um, uh, or zombie is a zombie film. Right. Now, uh, we're already, uh, talking about the way that logic breaks down in Italian horror because the, it is all about the gesture and the, you know, the, the mere practicality of things making sense as for uh, other countries' uh, films. But the director who sort of makes a specialty of, uh, the breakdown of reality being the horror is uh, Lucio Fulci. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, examples of that are, uh, The House by the Cemetery, uh, from 1981. Now that's based on a novel, so it does, uh, kind of wind up making sense. And there's some really unfortunate, uh, things about the way uh one thing about a lot of these films is that they seem extra stylized because italian cinema only very recently started shooting sync sound uh that uh, because uh and i think that came about most because cinecita the giant studio in rome was never soundproofed um and so even like the great fellini movies if you look carefully enough even in the italian subtitled version the lips don't actually fully match and Notoriously, in Fellini's case, often the actors didn't know what the dialogue was. They were just going one, two, three, four, five, six, and then later it was dubbed in. And uh, so uh, there's not necessarily ever a native language uh, print of anything. Unfortunately, in the House by the Cemetery, the be- the evil uh, uh, sinister force is Doctor Freudstein. <laughs> so, and but, they would have undoubtedly fixed that. In the English dub, except that there are times when you see the tombstone with the Dr. Freudstein name on it. So you've got ridiculous elements uh, coexisting with uh, really horrifying elements, crude gore that actually becomes really disturbing. And maybe if it was all really well made, it would be harder. To, it would be unbearable. Uh, but that one and, and the beyond, I think, is sort of the most Lovecraftian Italian horror movie. That's It's also got weird, crude gore effects. And basically the plot there is... There's a weird house, man. There's, things happen at that weird house, and man, oh, geez, they're really weird. And and they are Lovecraftian because uh, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery are part of an unofficial trilogy. And in City of the Living Dead, you see the Book of Ibon. So we know that it is Lovecraftian in a way. Um, I don't think we can leave Fulci without mentioning Zombie 2, um, his uh, movie, which is... I think not super great. Uh, my wife, who is a much bigger zombie film fan than I do, loves it. And it has the great zombie versus shark fight scene that, uh, if you haven't seen it, I recommend well, seeing go. it. But, but because what else do you need zombie to know versus shark. Zombie 2 is interesting. It's, it's got a lot going on, but I don't think if you are used to the sort of control of Romero or the panic of the 28 days later stuff, I think zombie 2, you have to really love zombies in a, in a zombie loving way to uh, get as much out of zombie two as you might, but zombie versus shark. So it's, it's got a good bit of it. Fulci. I'm not as super fond of, I think as a lot of people, I really liked um, the, the house trilogy, but I'm not as giant a fan of his other stuff just by and large. Um, And that may just be because um, he's not as good a centerist or a cinematographer really as uh, Bava. And he's not as just, mystically uh insane as argento and so he kind of falls between the stools a little bit for me so um are there other uh, films from other directors that you want to mention or are you going to speak up for cannibal holocaust i'm not going to speak up for cannibal holocaust i am not a fan of the cannibal subgenre of italian film we will have to leave that for other people uh to answer um i might say that uh cemetery man is a good sort of loving oh, yeah. homage to italian film uh, a horror film. It's directed by Michelle Suavi, who I believe was an Argento protege, if I'm not wrong. And Rupert Everett is the star of it. And it is a love story about zombies 
and is a loving homage without not being particularly with, with, without losing the sort of edge that makes Italian horror uh, its own right. thing. And based on a comic book, right. so it has that sort of level of... Uh, right. Uh, uh, Dylan Dog, which is worth hunting yes. down, actually, if you're into horror comics. Um, although I don't necessarily think that it is... Uh, I, I think you can read any random, say, 20 issues of Dylan Dog, and you've probably read as much Dylan Dog as you need to read. But you know, unless you've fallen in love with it, I would say, you know, hunt it down. And, but then stop. Um, and so um, there have been various uh, attempts to sort of uh, do tributes to the uh, giallo genre uh, since then. There's sort of some neo-giallos, including Argento did a movie called Giallo. And one that I liked better than uh, you did, which is just totally off into the realm of avant-garde dreaminess, is called The Strange Color of My Body's Tears. Yeah, that um, I, I liked what it wanted to do, but I didn't think that it kept the uh, it, it let you stop and think about how dumb the movie was too much, which I think is a, f- a criminal sin in a giallo. Um, but I, I, I liked a lot of what it looked like, right? I thought that they got the palette right, which is very hard, apparently, for uh, modern giallo films. Uh, there's a Barbarian Sound Studio, which, which is... Which I liked a little bit better than you did, because I enjoyed the playing with the sound, and I, and I really liked Toby Jones' uh, performance as the sound editor, who is unfortunately... Uh, brought into the world of Giallo without actually finding out about it. It has that, um, it, it combines the, 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 the fear of not knowing the language in a very interesting way, especially as a film about a sound guy who in theory should be comfortable in the oral universe and of course is not. Yes. And it's an English film which betrays that the greatest fear of English people is turning Italian. Is being embarrassed by Italians. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I really, the, the things that you like about it, I, I, also liked, but I wanted it to have more of a, a payoff. I wanted it to be better than it was, but I think I still liked it a little bit better than you. I think right. that's just because I'm a bigger fan of perception horror than you are, probably, just by and large. No, my my uh, thing was just structural. Okay, well, there you go. But really, I think the best tribute to uh, Giallo, uh, the best evocation of it uh, in the modern era, is the first Italy set episode of the final season of Hannibal. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to pick a uh, merger of subject matter and to have something where you put a style on top of it, that first. And for a while, I thought, is this going to be a, the Giallo season? But it was really just a Giallo, the Giallo episode, first episode. Which is probably it was, for the best. <laughs> may well have been, yes. Uh, but uh, that's probably the, the best uh, evocation of that. So I think we've uh, given the, the 101 on Italian horror and can uh, move very, very carefully and make sure there's no. Uh, Black gloved night- killer knife-wielding gloved killers as we make our way through this commercial to our next segment. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, 
not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like Jason Blaylock, Andreas Keltsen, Darren Dumay, Drew Clowry, and Rick Neal. Set a karmic marker for your future lives by supporting the show at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The tinkling of champagne glasses, the strains of a string quartet playing Vivaldi, and the sight of perfectly symmetrical gothic arches tell us we've once more entered a culture hut that is being knocked down by bulldozers run by fish and giant luminous llamas it's a surrealist edition of the culture hut and in that surrealistic mix comes patreon backer josh rose to ask how would the surrealist group's fervent attempts to become members of the communist party have changed if they had been embraced by the party and its leadership how might this have changed the links to the dreamlands and the tenuous spilling over between the two realms? And how would you see this altering a Dreamhounds campaign? Robin? Right. So, of course, this is a reference to Dreamhounds of Paris, our uh, Trail of Cthulhu project in which the uh, surrealists of uh, 20s and 30s Paris discover that they are able to manipulate and change the world of dreams and find that that uh, dovetails perfectly with their actual real historical desire to, through their art, uh, engender a psychic revolution that would change mankind, because in order to uh, have a, a revolution in a world uh, and ha achieve a world of perfect justice, you need to change uh, people and change their outlooks. And so uh, if we go into their dreams and change them that way, that can bring us to our perfect uh, communist utopia, Unlike the uh, actual communist uh, regime that uh, André Breton, who was the uh, sort of fervent, uh, self-appointed propagandist and uh, leader and uh, ex-communicator of other members, he pretty early on in like 33 uh, was one of the first uh, commun French communists of his era or Western communists in general to notice that something was really awry in Russia with Stalin and the first to actively denounce him. Uh, others of his colleagues were still fervent Stalinists in like the 40s and 50s when there was no excuse for that sort of thing. And uh, Well, there was precious little excuse in 1933, frankly. But uh, on the scale of people who are in that movement, he's the one who actually, you know, he gets yes. points. Yes, he, he, gets, he, gets more, he gets fewer penalty points than others. Let's put it that way. Uh, but at any rate, he and uh, many other members of this realist movement were indeed uh, members of the French Communist Party. And there are a lot of uh, kind of hilarious stories about the fact that, of course, the uh, Stalinist-led uh, uh, French communists uh, wanted nothing to do with these weird paintings with the sexual images or the weird fantastic uh, collages or the weird uh, poetry and all of this uh, reference to dreams and the psychic realm and uh, uh, seances and all of this. That was a, They were staunch materialists and uh, they uh, thought that all of this nonsense that Breton was bringing to the table could be uh, uh, cured out of him by uh, sending him to commune with the workers, and that therefore he would uh, achieve proper proletariat enlightenment. So they uh, dispatched him to like a, a, a meetings of a pipe fitters union or something, where he was supposed to, uh, you know, see the light and uh, become a proper exponent of the working class instead of a uh, an effete member of the aesthetic intelligentsia. So the, the question here is what would happen if that influence went the other ways, that rather than uh, breaking with Stalinism and uh, having a weird fit with it before then, um, and uh, again, I want to note that in actual history, after the war in the uh, late 40s and 50s, a lot of other members of the Surrealist movement and uh, people in that orbit like Picasso became hardcore Stalinists, <laughs> in part because of their work as uh, in the resistance during during the war and also the way that intellectual fashions changed in Paris. So what if that went the other way? Instead of uh, basically uh, Stalinism over time wound up kind of crushing Surrealism, what if Surrealism uh, changed uh, Stalinism? Or at least French Stalinism, when or doubts French it's going Stalinism. to reach all the way to Moscow and change Stalin's Stalinism, unless the dream hounds are even dream houndier than we know. Well, that's that's the thing, right? Is, it, is that we have a fictional uh, timeline with the supernatural and a desire to affect a world surrealistic uh, revolution. So uh, what does it look like if not just the, uh, the French communists, but uh, international communism become uh, infected with 
the uh, surreal and the whimsical and the strange. Well, first of all, it might not be any less violent. Uh, the uh, surrealists themselves were street fighters. Uh, Breton famously uh, broke a rival's arm with his cane at one point, and uh, others uh, argued that the you know, a real act of surrealism would be shooting a police officer or just shooting an innocent person in the street. I guess the question is, in your uh, sort of dreamhouse campaign, what happens if the outward world starts to become transformed, and that the uh, and that it's the uh, communist part of the world that starts to uh, change first. What does that uh, look like if the you know the the dreamland version of the plateau of Lang arises in uh, Siberia, for example, or if the uh, it might be that you know places in Russia start to acquire that strange windswept, eerie, post-classical, deserted look of a Giorgio de Chirico painting, or you start to see. Uh, rocks floating in the air, and what happens to the idea of a materialist outlook when it becomes essentially uh, magical? Does that mean that uh, Breton uh, is able to go to Russia and become an advisor to Stalin and uh, uh, show him how to navigate this new power and therefore influence Stalin in a more kind of uh, uh, Trotskyite uh, direction and one that is not just a uh, a tyranny in the uh, furtherance of Stalin, but a tyranny in furtherance of these uh, sincere ideological underpinnings that uh, Bhutan favored. What, what would you see as a uh, surrealized Soviet Union? Well, I think that one of the things that you want to do with, with this is you want to always have that looming threat going on. That, you know, the fact that the surrealists are doing things in the regular Dreamhounds as well as in the actual world doesn't mean the things that happen are the things they wanted to have happen. So Breton, let, let's say that Andre Malraux or someone uh, it recognizes the value of the surrealists and, and their unique vision and says, no, we should bring them into the communist party as a special artistic intelligentsia to explain the alienated condition of the, of the world. And that the, their surreal art is the world as it exists under uh, capitalism. But as the dialectic says, the seeds of communism can be seen in their art. So if you look into the deeper meanings of their art, you see the true communist utopia. And he sells the French Communist Party on that. They make a big deal out of it. And Breton is sent to Russia to explain himself, probably. And because he's Breton and he opens doors to the dreamlands without ever being able to walk through them, he's called in and opens a door to the dreamlands. And maybe you could even have him, you know, tossed into the Lubyanka and be in the next cell over from Gleb Boki, the old magical advisor to Gorky and Lenin. Or if you wanted to leave uh, poor Gleb Boki out of it, he's called in to talk to Stalin. He starts talking and Stalin realizes, oh, there's a secret door that I can go through and command the world. I'll do that. And he, uh, Stalin enters the dreamlands and merges immediately with the person of Nirlathotep, who is in the dreamlands, right? And it is the act of that merging that as the two of them are, are sort of twisting into one being and deciding what the form of the destructor will be, that the world and the Soviet Union to begin with, basically the gravity of that merging pulls the dreamlands into the Soviet Union. So Andre Breton thinks, I'll open a door and people will walk through it. And instead he's opened a door and Nirothotep is pulling the dreamlands through it into the Soviet Union. So you have the black galleys of dilathlene flying around and um, uh, and kidnapping people, just like in real world, you had NKVD guys going around Europe and kidnapping people. You have all of these other wild, nightmarish things that happen, and they begin happening first in the Soviet Union, where Walter Durante can say there's nothing wrong with it. But then eventually it begins to sort of spread into communist neighborhoods, first obviously in France, and then later on in the rest of the world. And you begin to see this sort of uh, melting clocks and um, uh, weird uh, minotaurs and whatnot uh, effects begin. And then the interesting question becomes, is there a, is there a period at which it damps out? Is there a period where Nirlathotep Stalin strides through and it openly rules the world and game over? Or is it a, a world in which the, those surrealists who feel, uh, who feel that Stalin may not have been the answer to all of their dreams, the player characters, mount a dangerous rear guard effort with and deciding whether or not they want the help of various degenerate artists in Germany and elsewhere who also don't want Stalinist art to take over the world or Stalinist surrealism to take over the world, they have to say, well, this guy, um, uh, uh, Stucker is, is not a good person. And he's certainly not a, a proper communist, but 
his art is magically effective and it seems to uh, be able to summon Hori Votan from beyond the deep. And do we want other weird gods in this mix and other stuff like that? So I think that you can see a, a whole series of, of artistic battles going on and maybe the, the, the rise of high modernism as the attempt to sort of blockade all that from America. Now, uh, that, of course, lets uh, uh, Stalin have all its surrealist fun. But uh, Breton, first of all, in the canonical Dreamhands of Paris, uh, can't himself ever go into the dreamlands, which is his source of uh, eternal frustration. So he would have to take someone with him to Moscow in order to open the door for uh, Stalin, and that would have to be someone unreliable. It could be like R Robert Desnos or uh, Antoinette Artaud, someone who is... Uh, I guess Desnos would be the reliably left-wing choice. Uh, Artaud would be more of a wild card. Uh, Dali, however, is the figure that was uh, came along to uh, rival Breton. Breton admitted that Dali was more an embodiment of surrealism than he ever was, but Dali was not reliably ideological he would make fun <laughs> of uh, Stalin now Dali, Dali even before he turned to the right after his family was abused in the Spanish Civil War was uh, kind of ideologically fuzzy but after that he uh, he became a Francoite but before that really he went to America where there was money and he and Hollywood and he loved all that so if Dali winds up in America and the uh, Cold War figures of the time you know, if, if James Jesus Angleton or uh, who who would reach out to Dali in the American... If we're doing uh, this in the 30s, first of all, I would really want to go and look into the background of the, the CIA uh, mounted a major campaign to sponsor abstract expressionism as a weapon against Soviet socialist realism. That's in the real world because Soviet socialist realism without surrealist uh, magic is all about, you know, painting a bunch of tractors and farmers and things. And uh, the CIA said American art, in the person of Jackson Pollock and other abstract expressionists, renounces Soviet socialist realism in the name of, of all this crazy freedom and jazz art. And yes. they and they put a bunch of money into sponsoring art to fight Stalinist art. So I think if yes. you go what, back what to the... What can we find that's more exciting than Stalinist realism? Color field painting. Color field. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so we... Uh, and, so they, and so if you go back to find the guy whose idea that was, I'll bet in the 30s or early 40s, he is you know, casting around for stuff to do and can be the young, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed guy in the proto-OSS who says, hey, I've got an idea. What if we use art? And then um, uh, that would be your, your your figure, and then you would want to research his life and come up with all the crazy stuff about him uh, that you could use. I would say, if you're looking for sort of an eminence degrees uh, to draw you in, um, you might look at the Guggenheims, right? The, the famous uh, art patrons who are also connected up uh, somewhat with the anti-Bundist movement in New York. So uh, you, you could maybe say, oh, the Guggenheims are actually behind it. And so you've got a secret Guggenheim conspiracy. Yes. Peggy Guggenheim counts Max Ernst among her various conquests. So, exactly. Uh, she could, and he comes to America with her. And so uh, it could be Ernst and Dali uh, training uh, America's uh, young dream forces to go into the dreamlands to combat the uh, harder edged, uh, uh, more brutalist uh, surrealist imagery uh, coming out of the uh, the French circle. So it's the uh, the Germans and the uh, and the Spanish uh, on one side against the uh, the French and the and the Russians on the other. And uh, yes. well, meanwhile, the army, of course, has all of its guns in uh, Norman Rockwell and doesn't believe that we need any of this fancy European nonsense. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we, so, Frederick uh, Remington and Norman Rockwell will keep America safe. Yeah, so Dali can be uh, training the uh, the giraffe walkers to go and uh, attack the uh, the death furnaces of uh, of Tsar. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I think that's basically how that how that lays out. Uh, self self explanatory, really. Really, yes. Uh, and therefore, uh, since we've explained the self explanatory, it's time to move on uh, through this commercial to our final segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, 
you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. Patreon backer James Griffin now walks up the creaky cobweb stairs uh, gets a good glower from the portrait of Madame Blavatsky uh, hung at the top of the stairs and heads on in to the Edwardian parlor where waits the consulting occultist to uh, consult with him on the following question. Past life regression used to be a big deal. Then it stopped being a thing altogether. What is or was up with that? Uh, so, Ken, where do you want to start explaining the vogue for past life regression and why it is no longer... Uh, number one on the occult hit parade. Yes. Now, num- no longer number one is different from stopped being a thing altogether. And sadly, you are correct. And uh, our beloved Patreon backer, James Griffin, is not. Past life regression is still something of a thing. Um, there is a guy named Dr. Brian L. Weiss who has a thriving Oprah-fied practice in past life regression. When I Googled past life regression, my Google search turned up at least three psychiatrists in Chicago offering past life regression. And <sighs> I want to say psychiatrists with quote marks. I yes. don't know whether they're actual psychiatrists, but they were offering past life regression therapy. So it's still a thing because for the most part, as once you're examining someone's centuries worth of past lives, you can bill a lot more hours. Um, <laughs> I mean, if all you have to do is just go back to their mom and dad in a standard Freudian model, you're pretty much done once you've dredged up all of mom and dad. That's why, you know, um, uh, memory repression probably became so big too. It's a fat way to, to uh, stiffen your bank account. The reason past life became gigantic was the Bridie Murphy case, which blew up in uh, the 1950s. Uh, and that was probably because hypnosis, Freudianism, at least the vulgar Freudianism that all of your problems are the result of a trauma that you suffered and have forgotten. That had completely penetrated the American subconscious by 1952. It was in every movie. It was in all kinds of books. It was in magazine articles. Uh, the, 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 the wholesale uh, accepting of the Freudian virus into American cultural life, uh, in addition to destroying horror for possibly forever, also um, meant a great deal of damage done to everyone's critical thinking abilities again, probably forever. But Bridie Murphy was, was a alleged past life of a lady in Colorado who believed that she'd become an, uh, she was an Irish uh, immigrant way back in the day. And it turns out, no, she just lived next to Irish immigrants. But anyway, that was a giant thing in 1952. And I think it was because hypnosis and Freud and the notion of past trauma being uh, this positive, being uh, the thing that proves what you are had been so accepted that it was like a, a rich Petri dish just waiting for infection to come into it. And if it hadn't been Bridie Murphy, it might've been alien contactees in the 1950s that had to wait uh, for hypnosis until John Mack did it in the seventies and eighties. But Bridie Murphy is a giant bestseller. And then once something is a giant bestseller, uh, people crawl out of the woodwork and they offer past life regression therapy and they write books about their past lives. And it becomes as he says, a giant thing. And the reason it stopped being a giant thing to the extent that it did is Cultural fads change. They change in elliptony. They change in psychiatry. They change in even Oprah. Uh, some things get to be on TV and some things don't. And UFO contactees used to get to be t- on TV and now they pretty much don't. They have to go on crazy radio. Uh, past lives. Some of them still get to be on TV. Dr. Oz, uh, actually in his, uh, in a fairly recent piece on past lives did not come out and say, this is malarkey. So. <laughs> Uh, factor he that says into your that the things he presents to his audience are malarkey. <laughs> yes, factor that into your Doctor Oz evaluation mechanic, if you will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not already a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Well, from the always, uh, always uh, necessary to lay another brick on that tomb, my friend. Yes. Uh, so there is still, um, uh, you know, there's still people. Um, I think the Israeli Health Department had to tell hypnotists that if they did past life regression, they'd be disbarred. 
Um, so there's, there, it's still a thing. There's still credulous dupes out there being past live regressed. So it's not, not a thing, but it stopped being a gigantic thing just because I think alien abduction took its spot in the niche. And then Freudianism has dropped out of favor with most psychiatrists, not all, but most. And so the whole notion of recovering your buried traumas has stopped being, uh, the big thing in psychotherapy and in psychiatry. And so that filters into the popular culture. And so when you hear about past life regression, you think, oh, that was a big thing back then, but now we know better. Right. Of course, we don't know better. We just know different nonsense. Because on one hand, past life regression is attractive because it is flattering, right? It's you. It's like uh, investigating your family tree writ large. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like you find yeah. uh, uh, that. Uh, and of course, in this, you know, you're never a nobody in Paris. You're a member of uh, Napoleon's personal bodyguard or you're Napoleon. Or you're Napoleon. Um, and, uh, so you get to feel a sense of aggrandizement from the long list of really awesome people that it turns out you are. And it turns out that, uh, uh, it seems like there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, alive today who are all Napoleon. So there must be some sort of soul fragmenting, uh, process. And also it's, uh, there are people who have the intuition, uh, you know, apart from being regressed that they may have a, a, a dream or uh, just a sort of a sense of a past life. And they may, uh, in their own narrative of their lives, use that to explain, you know, well, I, I don't like uh, to ever wear uh, uh, bracelets that are too tight because, uh, you know, I was, I was clapped in irons in a previous life. And uh, I, was, uh, I was the cellmate of the Count of Monte Cristo. So that's no good. I don't want to No, That's why I don't like bracelets. So it, it has a a sort of explanatory power for people. But on the other hand, I think one of the reasons that it uh, died out is that it's also fatalistic, right? It implied, you know, once you know that, um, what can you do about the fact that you used to be a Napoleon and you were uh, executed uh, as a traitor in the uh, American Revolution and that's why you're paranoid? There's nothing that I suppose you can argue that, well, by coming to terms with that, you can heal yourself. But that's even, you know, harder to fix then whatever uh, trauma supposedly that you experience that explains everything about you. Well, this is not really the space to discuss whether any of it ever fixes anything, but to the extent that psychiatry is supposed to work, it's supposed to work by, like you say, having you come to terms with the problem and then being able to process that process that openly and move beyond it. So if Freudianism is correct and past life therapy is correct, if, if, if two wrong things are right, then being able to confront and process an unknown trauma in your past life should be no different from being able to process the fact that, oh, mom bottle fed me or, oh, uh, dad, uh, I walked in on dad and mom having sex and that's why I am, you know, uh, consumed by interest in musical theater or whatever it is, right? That you have these things that you're trying to have untangled and by understanding the reason that they happen, the intellect can then act as a coolant on that crazy old id that doesn't know what it's doing. Now, of course, all of this is steam engineery nonsense, but I think that uh, to the extent that people ever are made better by past lives, uh, by past life regression, which is probably unproven, it might be that they're like, oh, it's not my fault that I'm afraid of mice. It's because I was uh, held captive uh, in the Bastille and was surrounded by dangerous rats for, uh, for a lot of time. So I'm not a big baby who can't handle the world. It's my past life was, was traumatized, but now I can sort of, uh, I can get beyond that. And again, I don't think any of it ever works myself, but the larger notion that, um, uh, talking something out at least adds a layer of remoteness and a layer of ironic distance to it. That seems to be pretty well proven. So maybe that's what happens. Right. And of course, Belief in reincarnation is a fringe belief in Western society, but of course is a bedrock part of cosmology for a uh, enormous percentage of uh, people in the world. And for uh, those cultures, you know, that that's uh, the idea that you would need to be regressed in order to have reincarnation proven to you is nonsensical. And the idea that there are things about you that are eternal and are revisited again and again in different incarnations is just part of the basic understanding of the universe. It's like you already knew that. Yeah. Right. And the, and the thing being that, you know, 
you know, you, you don't have to discover that you're on this earth to deal with a problem that was in your past life. That's the whole reason you're still on the earth instead of having gone on to, uh, Nirvana, right? Is that, or to nothing is that you've still got, you know, baggage. And until your baggage comes off the wheel, you're not coming off the wheel. And certainly it's better to be, uh, have a hypnotist convince you that you used to be in Napoleon's bodyguard than to convince you that you are currently being abducted by aliens. Yes. No, the, 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 the amount of, of dangerous trauma or that you were a, a part of a satanic uh, cult in your kindergarten. Right. Um, so uh, is there something that you see on the horizon that's going to be the next big fad belief, the way that uh, past life regression became in the, in the 50s? Or is that uh, if you could see it, it would already be here? I think that there's got to be something with the, the sort of generalized interest in changing your identity. Uh, you know, trans issues are, are gigantic now. So a lot of people are sort of looking at their identity in different and uh, strange to them ways. And you have combined that with the whole, everything on the internet is a lie. You know, it's all made up. You don't know any of it. I think that there's probably a big dissociative uh, a disorder type fad that's coming along. That's going to be either, I'm displaced in time or I'm actually, uh, you know, uh, being, you know, in, uh, influenced by this other entity that has swapped places with me somehow. Maybe walk-ins will come back. Um, I think that that's going to be maybe if, if I'm looking and again, there's this, none of this makes any sense. There's no way to do predictive culture studies, but I think that, you know, we are looking at maybe, uh, building up the, the static charge for another big, uh, thing that deals with how we understand why we're doing these things. And if these things are wasting time on or being a jerk on the internet, we're understanding that maybe by saying, Oh, when I'm on the internet, I'm a different person. And you're maybe going to start seeing some degree of conflation with that where it's, Oh, I'm literally a different person. I'm changed into a, a, a space dog or I'm changed into an Egyptian uh, a freedom fighter or something else. And that that just takes you over, right? There's already the other kin movement. There are people mm -hmm. who believe that their past lives were fictional, imaginary beings, except they're not fictional. They're, they represent a higher reality. So there are people who, you know, think they're an incarnation of a particular anime dragon. Yeah, I think that. I, I think that, you know, all of these movements wind up with seeds that you can go all the way back to and you can, you know, trace them back, you know, at least as far as there have been, uh, middle class people with time on their hands. So 1800. Um, but the, uh, but the things like the other kid movement, things like, you know, the people who believe that they're vampires or, or psychic vampires, better yet, um, that's going to be that, that, that's all part of the grist for I'm not who I actually am. There's this other thing that's inside me. And the thing about alien abduction and past lives is it's something that was done to me, whereas it's maybe better to say, I am a, a unicorn in a past life. It wasn't done to me. I've, I've sort of chosen that as opposed to some uh, charlatan comes along and charges me $900 to prove I was a unicorn in a past life. Yes. Nobody chooses to be a rust monster in a previous life. Well, if they, if they, if they want that sweet armor, though. <laughs> yeah, but the, the rust monsters don't get to keep the sweet No, they armor. eat the sweet armor. Oh, That's pick a lame monster. Put it in. No one wants to be a. Put flump. it in the metaphor. No one wants to be a flump. There, no one you're, wants to be. A flump. You're just desperately looking for a title for the podcast. There we go. Okay, well, on that note, now that we've got that out of the way, I think another podcast has been successfully concluded. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pelgrin Press, Phoenix, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Andrew Miller. Adam McDonald. Drew Scheel. Ethan James. And Isaac Priestley. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.